I want to continue reading in Luke chapter 2, picking up in verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Father, speak to us now the good news of great joy, these glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the King, has been born into the world and He was born to die and indeed has died and was raised from the dead on the third day. This is our salvation, all found in Him, in His person and in His work. May we hear Him today. May we fasten on to Him in our hearts and trust Him and put our hope fully in Him. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tis the season for the most wonderful music of the year. Uh, The many great things about the Christmas season, one of the best about the whole Advent and, and Christmas cycle in the church calendar is certainly the music. Oh, sure, there's a lot of really bad Christian uh, Christmas music, a lot of really uh, sappy, sentimental Christmas music. But so much of the Advent Christmas music, especially in the church, is really and truly glorious. In fact, I would say the greatest music ever written was composed to celebrate Christmas, the birthday of Jesus. There are so many great hymns for this season. And of course, we're singing some of them today and uh, certainly tomorrow night at Lessons and Carols. That's one of the whole purposes of the service for us to get to sing this glorious music uh, that goes with this season. We know that music has great power. Uh, different kinds of music can make us feel different kinds of ways. And because music can make us feel, it can actually make us act as well. Music influences us, and that's why we should always be careful about the kind of music we listen to. But when music is directed towards God, that is, when it's offered to God in praise and thanksgiving, it takes on a special kind of power. The power is not just inside of us and our thoughts and in our emotions, but the power is out there in the world where God acts. See, music sung to God is not just worship. It's warfare. Uh, you get a good example of this in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, Jehoshaphat, one of the good kings in Judah, uh, has to go to war. And so as he's going to battle, Jehoshaphat puts the choir on the front line. It's not the swordsmen, it's the singers who will lead Israel into battle. And of course, as they sing, God acts to scatter the enemy. God ambushes the enemy through song. And in a way, that's what happens here in Luke chapters 1 and 2. These chapters recount a divine invasion. God is going to win the war over sin and death. But the leading edge of this warfare, the leading edge of God's invasion is music. And so punctuating Luke's narrative 
You have the songs of Mary and Zacharias and the angels and Simeon. The gospel songs, these gospel songs strike a blow against wickedness in high places. They make things happen. God acts in accordance with the prayers that are sung to him by his people. One of the best examples of this really is found in Luke chapter 2 when the angels add their song to Luke's musical mix. Uh, Verse 13 calls the angelic choir a heavenly host. That is to say, this is an army. That's what a host is. It's an army. This is the army of heaven, an angelic army. And how do they come to fight, to wage battle? They do so through song. See, the host is a choir. The angelic singers are also angelic soldiers. And we don't know what their song sounded like in Handel's, in, uh, Handel's Messiah. There's an absolutely glorious rendition uh, of the angel's song. Uh, and of course, it's also, uh, the angel's song also shows up in a lot of really fabulous hymns like Angels We Have Heard on High. Uh, we don't know exactly what it sounded like, but I dare say it was perhaps the most glorious song ever heard by human ears. This is the choir of angels. God himself is their conductor. They're singing a heavenly song for earthly ears to hear. We want to look at this song today. Uh, Every detail of it is important. Uh, But as we've done with the other songs in this part of Luke's gospel, we want to look at the content of this hymn in its context, in the context of the story. So let's pick up with Luke's story in verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, Luke has certainly already placed the story of Jesus' birth in the context of Israel's history. Uh, We've seen that already in looking at Luke chapter 1. But he also wants to place the birth of Jesus in the context of imperial history, not just in the context of Romans, uh, of Israel's history, but in the context of Roman history. And so Luke tells us about Caesar Augustus. He is the imperial king. And he issues a decree that the whole world is to be registered. Certainly this would create a lot of hassle for the masses as they have to move about. But it's just the kind of thing that empires do. Is it not cause hassle and trouble for other people, for the masses? It's important to remember here uh, what's going on politically. Um, in Israel's history, the, 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 the nation of Israel was first organized as a collection of tribes with tribal heads. And then Israel became a kingdom with a king. It became a monarchy. And then finally Israel became a subject people to a series of Gentile empires. This started with the exile, but it has continued down to this very day when Jesus would be born. These empires were set up by God. God is not necessarily anti-empire. Sometimes the empires would do good things. Sometimes they would do bad things. But it's important to notice many times... The empire was very favorable to God's people. So if you read the book of Daniel, you find that the emperor Nebuchadnezzar uh, was very favorable to Daniel. He had to go through a a conversion uh, to get there, a rather dramatic conversion. But by the end of his reign, he's issuing a letter that calls on all the people in his realm to worship Daniel's God. Uh, Later, another Gentile Emperor Cyrus is presented in the book of Isaiah really as a prototype of the Messiah who sends the Jews back to their land to rebuild the temple, ending their exile in a certain sense and calling on them to rebuild the house of God. 
And he's even called the shepherd and the Lord's anointed. Uh, For the most part, the Roman Empire in Luke's gospel, and again, of course, Luke also wrote Acts, uh, the Roman Empire in Luke's, Luke and Acts comes off looking pretty good. It's presented in a rather favorable light. Uh, in Luke's gospel, we find Roman soldiers who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Uh, in the book of Acts, we find that the Roman uh, Empire officials generally protect Christians from Jewish persecution. It's actually the Jews who are doing the persecuting. Certainly, Rome does eventually come to persecute Christians as well, but that's a bit later. So while Caesar's action here was no doubt driven by pride and ambition, usually it's a bad thing in the Bible when kings take a census. Uh, certainly we could say here there is something tyrannical about what Caesar is doing. Luke's not particularly interested in that aspect of what he's doing. Luke is interested in how God is using the empire to fulfill his purposes. And here Caesar makes a decree that every man must return to his hometown. And this is God, actually, through Caesar's decree, moving the pieces around on the map, getting them right where he wants them. See, because of this decree, Joseph had to take his pregnant wife from Galilee to the city of David, to Bethlehem, where many centuries before the prophet Micah had prophesied the Messiah would be born. So if Joseph and Mary are the chosen couple who will be parents of the Son of God when he enters into human history, then they've got to get, God has to get Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem so the Son can be born there. And this is how God does it. So while they are in Bethlehem, Mary gives birth to her baby boy. She wraps him in swaddling cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn is how most of our translations read, but that's not actually the best uh, translation. There's, there are a lot of interesting things going on here. Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes here at the beginning of the gospel. At the end of the gospel, of course, he's going to be wrapped in burial clothes. We can say even now he was born in order to die. We find here there's no room for them in the inn. Actually, um, and, and of course we have this vision then in our heads and we've seen it in, in stories and plays about the, the Christmas uh, account where Mary and Joseph go to uh, uh, the inn and the innkeeper turns them away and Mary starts asking Joseph, why didn't you make reservations ahead of time? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's probably not actually how it happened. It's possible. It's possible that the word there for in, uh, this translated as in, means that. Uh, but the city of Bethlehem probably was not large enough to have a commercial inn or hotel. It was a very small uh, village. And the word there doesn't usually mean inn. Uh, Luke has a word for inn, for a commercial establishment where you could pay money to stay somewhere. That word shows up in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. That's not the word used here. It actually could be better translated, there was no room for them in the guest chamber. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus talks about where he's going to celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples. And they end up in the guest chamber, which is this upper room. And there with his disciples, he will celebrate the Passover. So what Luke is telling us here is that there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the guest chamber of the house. And again, it's interesting to think about the beginning and end of Luke's gospel. Here at the beginning, there's no room for Jesus in the guest chamber at his birth, but at his just before his death, at the end of the gospel, he will find room in the guest chamber to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Again, one of those connections between the beginning and end of Luke's gospel. 
Most likely in Luke 2, something like this happened. Uh, when Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, uh, they likely intended to stay with relatives since this was Joseph's hometown. Uh, but perhaps other relatives who were coming to Bethlehem for the census got there first, and they were already lodging in the guest quarters, and so there was no more room in the guest chamber. Or, and I actually think this is more likely, perhaps because many would have thought that Mary had been immoral in uh, getting pregnant out of wedlock, the the young couple was shunned. They were refused hospitality. In other words, that line, Jesus came to his own, but his own refused him, that's a dynamic that really begins even before Jesus was born. Because they were shunned, they had to stay in the place where the animals were kept, basically a barn or a stable, uh, which may or may not have been attached to the house. It would be kind of like a garage uh, today. Uh, but it was the only place where they could find shelter. Uh, we know they stayed where animals were kept because when Jesus was born, he was laid in a manger, which is actually a feed box for animals. And so, yes, animals most likely were gathered around him, just like the hymns and the nativity scenes depict. Jesus is born in a place where the animals stay. Uh, it's clear Jesus is born in a lowly condition. Uh, I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is born in a lowly condition in the most impoverished of circumstances. It's interesting, his mother in the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 1, has just sung a song with this line. With this line in in Luke chapter 1, verse 52. Uh, He has pulled down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. Mary has just sung a song about this great reversal that's going to take place in history where those who exalt themselves or have this exalted status and look down on others are going to be pulled down and those who are of low degree, those who have humbled themselves before God are going to be exalted. Well, how does that factor into this? See, the Son of God certainly has voluntarily left His throne so He doesn't have to be pulled off of His throne. But precisely because he has made himself lowly, he will be exalted. Jesus himself embodies the great reversal Mary sang about in her Magnificat. You know, you think if he's the true king, if he's the son of God, shouldn't he be born in a palace? But no, it's in a stable. It's where the animals are kept. Uh, It's the lowliest of places. But you also can't ignore the deeper layers of meaning here, the symbolic significance to all of this. See, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God had prophesied, God had made it clear that the Messiah would come as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He would be the fulfillment of all those lambs that had been slaughtered through the centuries to to symbolize the, the cleansing of the people through a blood sacrifice. And now we find that when Jesus comes into the world, he is born in, a, in the very place where a baby lamb would have been born. If he's coming into the world as the lamb of God, what better place to be born than where lambs are born? But of course, the lambs that were offered at the Passover and uh, for peace offerings were eaten. They were eaten. And so Jesus is laid in a manger. He's laid in a feed box. He is the world's food. He has come to feed the world. This too uh, we see in Luke's account. We're going to feed on him today when we take the bread and the wine. Think of that line, and let all mortal flesh keep 
silence. He will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. You see that here where he's laid in the feed box. The animals may have wondered that night why there was a baby in their food bowl, but we know. We know why. Jesus has come to be this heavenly food for the world. Now Luke goes on to tell us, he says, nearby there were some shepherds. This is taking place at night. These shepherds are working the night shift. And it's interesting to consider the fact that uh, that this message is given to shepherds. Shepherds were not highly regarded in ancient Israel. That's always a little bit of a surprise to find that out because, after all, Israel was really a nation of shepherds. That's one of the things that the Egyptians had loathed about the Israelites is that they were shepherds. David, uh, the prototypical king, had been a shepherd, and there were promises about the Messiah coming and being a shepherd to Israel as his flock. And David, of course, had written psalms about the Lord. As a shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But despite all of these royal associations, these associations that link shepherds with kingship, shepherds were considered lowlifes. Uh, they were part of the underclass. Maybe it's because they, they, they stunk so bad from hanging out with sheep all the time. Uh, but in keeping with this theme of reversal, the shepherds are the one who, ones who receive this angelic birth announcement. First, a solitary angel of the Lord appears to them. And when this angel appears to them, as they're watching over their flocks out in the fields at night, the glory of the Lord shines all around them. This is just amazing. Do not miss what is happening here. The glory of the Lord was normally visible to no one. No one gets to see the Lord's glory. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, God said, well, I'll show you my backside. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and pass by and you'll see the backside of my glory. The Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the most holy place of the temple where God was enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. The high priest could go in there one time a year, one day a year. But even then, the glory of God was guarded by those cherubim. Uh, it's true that, that uh, as I just said, shepherds are associated with a kingly office. But here it's as if the shepherds become quasi-priests. In fact, they're like the high priest now. They're, they suddenly find themselves in the most holy place as the sky opens up and they are surrounded by the glory of God. The glory of God is found in the most holy place. And so if the glory of God is shining upon them, it's like they're in the most holy place. They suddenly find themselves as high priests in the very presence of the glory of God. And I think it's worth noting here, it was this same Shekinah glory that appeared in the form of a star to those God-fearing magi, the wise men of the East. And that glory star, of course, will lead them to the Christ child as well. They're going to arrive just a few days after the shepherds. It's that same glory that same Shekinah glory that filled the pillar of cloud and fire that led the Israelites in the wilderness after the Exodus. And it's that same glory that would blind Paul the Apostle on the way to Damascus. See, angels and stars and glory are all associated with one another in Scripture. You know, some of us put angels on the top of our Christmas tree. Others put a star on the top of the Christmas tree. But... 
There's no reason to debate that because they're virtually interchangeable in the accounts of Christ's birth. The angel and the star go together, both uh, revealing God's glory. Now, what does the angel say? Well, verses 10 and 11, we have it. Do not be afraid. Again, this is amazing to stand in the light of God's glory without fear was simply unthinkable. But that's what the angel commands, that these shepherds are to stand in the light of God's glory without fear. The angel says, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all peoples. See, the angel here is announcing the gospel, a gospel that brings great joy to the whole world, to all peoples. It's not even just for Israel. It's going to be for all the nations. This is the joy of Christmas. This joy is found everywhere in Luke's Christmas story. Gabriel heralds this joy. The angels sing about this joy. John the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother's womb when Jesus draws near. In Luke chapter 1, later in Luke chapter 2, Simeon and Anna will show their joy. Joy is everywhere in Luke's account of Christmas. Joy is found everywhere. That's why it's such a joyous season. This is a joyous event. It's glad tidings of great joy for all peoples. And the angel says, for there is born to you this day. That sounds kind of like an echo of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The angel saying, this is the child. The child prophesied about and the child promised so long ago. That child is being born. The angel says this will happen in the city of David. So this child's going to be a Davidic figure, a descendant of David, a new David. This child is born to be a king. All the promises made about the new David, the greater David to come, are going to be fulfilled in him. Think of all those great messianic psalms that uh, foretell a a Davidic king, a, a new Davidic king that God will send into the world. Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 and Psalm 110. All psalms that are going to be fulfilled in this child, the angel is indicating. The angel says this child will be a savior. He has come to rescue God's people in accord with the, with the covenant promises. God has promised salvation. Now he's going to make good on that promise through this child who has been born. The angel says who is the Christ? That is, he is the spirit anointed king and deliver he is the messiah and then you have this bombshell which is really uh, i think so important he is the lord the angel makes this announcement saying he is that uh, this one born to you this day in the city of david is a savior he is christ the lord now this is what's interesting the angel announces that this is the birth of the lord What's interesting is that already in Luke's Gospel, the Lord has been referred to 17 times. And every single time, it refers to the Lord God, to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. It is true that that title Lord could be referred to a human of great stature, a human with great status. But in Luke's Gospel to this point, every single time the word Lord has appeared, it refers to God. The only possible exception would be in Luke chapter 1, verse 43, where Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. 
Now, Elizabeth may have had some kind of understanding of the incarnation at that point, uh, although I certainly don't think that she would have had a full understanding of this child being God in the flesh. Uh, we could actually say that uh, she uh, spoke more truly than she knew at the time. She may have just been referring to a human king. Now we know that that word Lord used there, inspired by the Holy Spirit for her to speak this way, actually meant a whole lot more than what she could have uh, imagined. But in every other instance, whenever that word Lord is used in the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel, it always refers to God Himself. And of course, this is the word of the angel. The angels know. They know that this child born this day in Bethlehem, is the Lord incarnate, not only the Son of David, but the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the God-man. He is the Creator in the cradle. He is the infinite infant. This is the wonder of the incarnation spoken of by the angel here. This child who is born is the Lord. Our God has taken up residence in a barn. <laughs> Think of it. Barns are messy places. God came to the barn. He was born in the stable because He wanted to enter into our mess and our filth fully in order to cleanse us and deliver us. See, if He came into a barn, it means God has come to the messiest places of all in order to clean us up and make things right. The incarnation shows us God did not want to be God without us. And so He becomes God with us. He clothes Himself with the veil of human flesh to become one with us that He might give Himself to us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam seized God-likeness in pride and arrogance. In the stable, Jesus does the opposite. He enters into human likeness in love and in humility. The incarnation shows us God the Son has taken up our humanity into Himself, becoming what we are so that we might become what He is. He participates in our humanity that we might participate in God's Trinity, sharing in the love that the Father and the Son have for one another in the Spirit. Every facet of human life from birth through death will become a property now of God the Son. He is a divine person with a human nature and a human history. And He is acquainted with the whole range of human experience in all its weakness and vulnerability and mortality. God the Son has now experienced human life from the inside. This is what John Calvin called the wonderful exchange. So this is the wonderful exchange. By His descent to earth, He has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. By taking on our mortality, He has conferred His immortality upon us. Accepting our weakness, He has strengthened us by His power. Receiving our poverty upon Himself, He has transferred His wealth to us. Taking the weight of our iniquity upon Himself, He has clothed us with His righteousness. Calvin said, this is the great exchange that takes place in the Incarnation. A few centuries later in our own uh, nation, perhaps the greatest American theologian of them all, uh, Jonathan Edwards described it this way. 
Uh, he described these paradoxes of the incarnation as the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. That's how he captured the paradoxes of the incarnation, the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Just drop that at the Christmas dinner table uh, as you're discussing the incarnation, uh, as I know you all will uh, on Christmas Day. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. What does it mean? Jesus is the human God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is Christ the Lord, God and man. One person with two natures, fully divine and fully human. That baby in the manger is God. God became a baby. The God who gave birth to the whole creation was born in Bethlehem. The eternal God had a beginning, a birthday. The boundless God was wrapped up in swaddling cloths. The God whom the heavens cannot contain was held in His mother's arms. The eternal Word of the Father became a babbling baby. The glorious One came to us in utter humility. In Jesus, the highest glory and the deepest humility come together. The greatest power and the most vulnerable weakness. Again, that's what Calvin called the great exchange. It's what Edwards meant by the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. This is what you find in the Incarnation. Glory and humility coming together. Omnipotence. Divine omnipotence. And an infant's weakness brought together. And yet understand, this truth of the Incarnation is not given to us to be a kind of philosophical puzzle or riddle for us to figure out or to speculate about. Paul calls it the mystery of godliness, and it certainly is a mystery. But it is revealed to us that we might join in the joy, that we might leap for joy, knowing now that God has come for us and is one with us. This is unlike any other account of God you will find anywhere else. The God that reason constructs, the God of the philosophers would never have done this. The God of the philosophers would never have taken on the flesh, much less the flesh of an infant. The God uh, that our reason can create, the God of our reason would never take on flesh in order to die on a cross. See, this is both the offense and the glory of the Christian Gospel. It is the uniqueness of the Christian Gospel. What Christians say is this. A God without flesh is useless to us. A God without flesh can do us no good. He is at best a concept and at worst a terror. The glory of the Christian Gospel is that our God now has flesh. He has taken on flesh. He has become one of us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To, to live the life that we should have lived but never did, but could not and did not. To die the death that we deserve to die. A cursed death. A hellish death. And of course, He has been raised from the dead and has ascended into heaven that we might be fully rescued and saved from our sin and from death. And so the message of the angels is this. The message of the Christian Gospel is this. The living God cannot be known or understood apart from Jesus. Unless you see that baby in the manger is Christ the Lord, you do not know God. 
You do not know Him aright. Where do you find God? You don't find God by turning inward to your own reason or to your feelings. No, you find God by going to the manger and to the cross. That's what the angel says. You will find a baby in swaddling clothes. Christ the Lord. You want to find the Lord? Go to Bethlehem and you will find a baby in swaddling clothes. And in finding that baby, you will find the Lord. The angel says this baby in a manger is your Creator and your Savior. The God-Man. This is the message of the solitary angel. But then the whole multitude of angels appear and break out in song. It is a host of angels, an army of angels. Some wonder, actually, if these words of the angel were actually uh, sung because it, it says in the text, this is what they said. Well, again, I would just say, listen to Handel's Messiah. You'll know that they were sung. But the words here in Luke's Gospel have all the marks of lyrical poetry. And actually, there are plenty of other places in Scripture where the text of Scripture will say these words were said, but we know that they were sung. We know from the context that they were sung. Uh, the context and the form uh, make that clear. You've got that with Mary's song. We saw that with the Magnificat uh, and actually the Benedictus of Zacharias as well. This happens in the Psalms where it, it says this is what was said, but we know that it was sung. And of course, too, we know that angels are singers. Job 38, the angels sang at the creation of the world. Now they're singing at the world's new creation. Because that's what the birth of Jesus is. It's the beginning of a new creation. So just as the angels, the hosts of heaven, sang when God made the world, singing over God's creation in the beginning, now they sing over the new creation, the new beginning God is making through His Son. This is certainly the concert of the ages, the greatest choral performance of them all. And what do the angels sing? They sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. See, the, the, the shepherds not only see God's glory, they hear God's glory. God the Father in heaven is surrounded by angels, and so it's fitting that God the Son would be surrounded by angels when He comes to earth. Because indeed, Jesus comes to bring heaven and earth back together. Heaven and earth were created to be one. Heaven and earth were created in sync with one another. Because of Adam's sin, that harmony between heaven and earth has been disrupted. But now that the Son of God, the new Adam, has been born into the world, creation's going to be restored. It's going to be retuned. It's going to be recreated and reharmonized. Heaven and earth will, will ultimately be made one in Jesus. The angels sing, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, has come in the lowest. He's entered in this world in the lowest possible condition. God is glorified in the birth of His Son for just this reason. The glory of God is seen in His humility and His sacrificial love as God gives Himself to us and for us. Really, this is what Christmas is. It is a celebration of God's humility and God's self-giving, sacrificial love. That's really what Christmas is celebrating. And the birth of Jesus into the world means peace. 
It means shalom. The shalom that the Hebrew prophets pointed to is now coming. It will come through this child. See, all that God made in the beginning, God made the world good. But the world has been corrupted by sin. Death has entered in. And so in the place of peace, we have enmity and alienation. Jesus comes to usher in a kingdom of peace so that humanity and the world can flourish and fulfill their original design, their original purpose. See, this peace is comprehensive. It means not only is God saving souls, but bodies as well. Not only is God saving individuals, He's saving societies and civilizations as well. He comes to make His blessings flow, for as the curse is found, He comes to make His peace known. As Abraham Kuyper said, every square inch of creation is being claimed by Him. And so Jesus comes so that the world, once again, might be a theater of God's glory. Now the angel saying a peace, and this can be kind of hard for us to, 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 to grasp, because we look around at our culture, our society, our world, and we don't see a lot of this peace. We don't see much of it. How can we look back on the year 2017 and say Jesus came to bring peace into the world? Where is this peace that the angels sang about? Has the coming of Jesus really made any difference in the world at all? It does seem peace on earth has fallen on hard times. Instead of peace, it seems we have war. We have culture wars and race wars and gender wars and class wars. We have war in the Middle East. We've got rumors of war from Korea. We see nature at war with man when hurricanes flood cities and fires flatten neighborhoods. We see corruption all around us. We see strife. We can feel the tension in the air. Peace on earth seems like a pipe dream. So what did the angels mean? As one pastor puts it, we can't smother evil with holiday sentimentality. I think that's what a lot of people try to do this time of year. We also can't give cliched responses to the hard questions that evil and suffering pose to us. I think that's another thing that Christians try to do year-round, is just give cliched, canned responses to really deep questions. The promise of peace, peace on earth means Peace is always available to us at all times. If we would simply trust Christ and obey Christ and love as He calls us to love and live as He calls us to live, then peace would flow like a river. We'll have peace with God and every other kind of peace follows from that. See, this peace with God is no fairy tale. The Gospel's no myth. But it's also clear this peace does not come all at once. In fact, the way to this peace is through the pathway of suffering and sacrifice. And Jesus himself shows us this. Jesus came to make peace, but how does he do it? See, that cute baby in that idyllic manger scene grew up to become the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And peace would come only at the price of his life. And if we want to see peace on earth, if we want to see this peace, 
fill the earth, then we must live sacrificially in Christ Jesus as well. Bearing others' burdens. Absorbing the wrongs done to us in forgiving love. Showing mercy to those in need. See, Christmas leads to the cross. How does peace come? Sin and evil can only be covered with the blood of Jesus. You can't cover it with holiday sentimentality. Sentimentalism can't change the world. Clichés can't change the world. It's trusting Jesus. It's obeying Him as our King and doing the hard work of imitating Jesus and submitting to Jesus. That's what will change the world. We need His wisdom and His Word. We need His love and His life. More than ever. And we've got to embody these things in our own lives if we want this peace to be manifest. But we can do so knowing this. This is the encouragement. God will bring this peace to pass. He will fill the world with His peace. He will fill the whole earth with His shalom. Because This is His promise. This has been His promise from the beginning. And so we as His people, we as Christians know, time is on our side. We can take the long view of history. We know that God will be faithful to a thousand generations. We might want to see that peace right now and we need to do what we can in our own lives to bring that peace in. But we also have to be patient knowing God works on His own timetable and in His own way. Here the angel declares God's goodwill towards all men, towards all peoples. That's what ensures that God's peace will prevail. It's because God is a God of goodwill towards men. And so His grace and His kingdom will ultimately triumph. The road there may be winding and bumpy, but it's going to happen. We see headlines every day that trouble us. But you know, those headlines change hour by hour or even minute by minute. The news cycle keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. This is good news that lasts. This news announced by the angels. This is a headline that is true every single day. This headline should be over our lives every single day. This is God's good news. It's good news you can build your life on. It's good news you can build a civilization on. This good news of Christ who has come. Well, what do the angels do? They heard the angel song, and so they went to see the sign the angel spoke about. And sure enough, they found a baby in a manger with Mary and Joseph. It didn't look much like a royal family, but this was the sign the angel had described. So they knew this is happening. And so these shepherds, who we've already seen, are really kingly priests become missionaries and evangelists as well. They go about Bethlehem telling others what they had seen and heard, making all of this widely known. And the shepherds also become worshipers, returning to their fields and their flocks, glorifying God for all they had witnessed. They knew now that the king had indeed been born. Salvation had arrived. And I think really those different roles played by the shepherds show us how to celebrate Christmas. They show us how we should respond to Christmas. God has made us kings and priests. God calls us to be missionaries and worshipers. As we do these things, we show the world what Christmas is all about. See, Christmas is ultimately about God revealing Himself to us. What is God like? 
you shall find Him in a manger. And later, you shall find Him on a cross. He is a God who stoops in love to suffer for us, to serve us, to save us. And what should we do in return? We should live as His royal priesthood, evangelizing for Him, spreading this good news, worshiping Him, giving Him glory for what He's done. And in this way, the peace and joy of the King born at Christmas will spread. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that Your peace and joy that You have brought into the world through Christ Jesus would spread to all peoples. Father, so often we see so little of it in our own lives and even less of it in the world around us. But we cling to Your promises. We know that the world is a different place because Jesus has come. And we know that His kingdom is growing. Oh, not always in ways we can see. But we know that His kingdom is growing and it will fill the earth. Father, fill us with this hope and joy in this Advent and Christmas season and indeed year-round in all our days. Help us to worship you, to glorify you. Help us to be evangelists, missionaries, spreading this good news. Help us to do all of these things that the kingdom of Christ Jesus may fill the earth. This we pray in his name. Amen.